Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. What's clear in the summer of 2020 is that we're on the verge of much needed change, change in politics and economics and how we organize in society, above all else, perhaps in the very nature of capitalism itself. Um, One community of investors and economic uh, activists who are worth talking to about reshaping American capitalism are venture capitalists. They don't always get the best uh, reputation, uh, especially on the progressive community, but many VCs are in fact quite politically progressive and are very innovative when it comes to reshaping American capitalism. Uh, One guy who always comes to mind on that front is Brad Feld, the Boulder-based early-stage investor and entrepreneur. Uh, He's the co-founder of the Foundry Group, very uh, distinguished, legendary, in fact, early investor in tech companies. And he's also a writer. He has a new book out, The Startup Community Way. He's written several books in the past about investing and startup communities. Uh, Brad, uh, is 2020, is the summer of 2020 the moment when some of your wisdom about startup investing and startup communities can be used more broadly beyond technology? I think so. Uh, Many of the dynamics that we're dealing with in this moment, uh, which we could probably broadly label the COVID crisis, is really a series of complex systems that are unfolding in ways that are extremely unpredictable and where the interaction between different elements of them are both near-term but also long-term profound. And if you think about the COVID crisis as being a health crisis, which generated an economic crisis, right? We had a strong economy in the absence of COVID. That's generating a mental health crisis. We're not used to, as humans, having to deal with a pandemic like this and being isolated and all of the other stresses that we have, including uh, economic stresses. Of course, in the U.S., we have a racial equity crisis that's emerged, which is not a new crisis. It's been around for you know 450 years in the U.S. All these crises have been around for many years, and they have been flow, and that's part of the nature of complex systems. And A big part of my philosophy in general around entrepreneurship and startup communities specifically is that they are complex systems and that instead of trying to manage them top down and control them, which is basically impossible to do with a complex system, uh, you impact it through the various things that you do over a long period of time and then the interactive effects of all those activities. So I'd like to think that you know the philosophy is broadly applicable. When we set out, by the way, when we, when we started writing this book, Ian Hathaway, my co-author and I in 2017, we weren't thinking about 
any of of the contemporary dynamics around uh, complex systems or the current crisis, we were uh, trying to write a sequel to the book that I wrote in 2012, which was called Startup Communities, and and created the language uh, and a way for people to think about how to build a startup community uh, in any city in the world, rather than you know in a couple of specific places like the Bay Area and New York and others. Uh, Brad, when you use this term complex theory or complexity theory, complex systems, some people's brains switch off. They get confused. Um, Tell me in very simple terms what you mean by complexity theory. Uh, So I'm glad that that you'll help me flip uh, brains back on. I'm going to use an example, and I'll use three examples. There are three types of systems uh, that are commonly referred to. Uh, simple systems, complicated systems, and complex systems. A simple system, the example would be making a cup of coffee. Uh, You have inputs, there's a process, and the output is a cup of coffee. You can vary a few things, use different beans, or maybe use a different coffee maker, or introduce things like sugar and milk into the coffee. But in the end, you have coffee, and there's a recipe. It's a simple system, beginning, end, deterministic process. A complicated system is like a simple system in that it has a beginning and an end, and it's got a deterministic process, but it's got uh, got a lot more steps. And the steps don't have to be necessarily done in a certain sequence. So in business, uh, closing out your monthly financial statements or producing your monthly financial statements uh, would be an example of a complicated system. coming up with and manufacturing the next Boeing plane, a Boeing 797, is a complicated system. The design and development of it is really, really challenging. But at the end, you have a playbook. You have a very, very thick, extensive guide that you can do beginning to end and produce a 797. A complex system doesn't have a deterministic outcome. It doesn't really have a beginning and an end. There's no playbook. There's no recipe. The things in the complex system, while they're important, they're not the thing that is important. The thing that is important or the things that are important are the interactions between all the elements because they then modify things over time. To be geekier about the type of complex system a startup community is, uh, it's a complex adaptive system, which is just a subset. We shortened it to complex system just to simplify things. And uh, the word adaptive's key is that a complex system that's adaptive is constantly changing based on new inputs and new outputs. And if you then map it back to our current reality, and I'll use COVID, just the health issue as an example, uh, no one could have uh, predicted what is going on on July 16th uh, on March 11th, which was the first day that I stayed at home. Uh, The place that we are in the U.S. and different states around the world are a function of the many, many different things that have been done uh, over the last six months versus uh, and the interaction of those effects. And where we end up three or four months from now is going to be a function of many more of the interactions of those effects. And so in that way, the complex system is always evolving 
based on the things that are happening rather than you're going from beginning to end of a process. If there's a meta theme in, in your book, it's this shift we're going through in political, economic, cultural terms from what you call a, a hierarchical system to something which is flatter, which perhaps is this complex system. You argue in your book that hierarchical systems, whether they're in politics or in economics, are out, outdated forms of management. You argue that the world has changed and so must we. Um, could 2020 be, could it be the year where we formally shift from one uh, operating on these hierarchical systems to something flatter, more democratic, more inclusive? So I think we have already. It's just not equally distributed around the world. Uh, in 2008, I believe that was the moment where we shifted from hierarchical systems to network-based systems. What happened in 2008, as people you know, time travel back, is the global financial crisis. And the idea of a hierarchy that's a top-down, uh, centrally managed, or you know, uh, at the top leadership-driven organization is a way to organize labor. It's a way to organize labor going back to you know, the beginning of time, right? Religion generally operates on a hierarchy. Uh, there's somebody at the top, depending on your type of religion. Uh, if you look at military, they militaries tend to operate on a hierarchy. Governments operate on a hierarchy. And business started to operate on a hierarchy in the late 1800s, early 1900s as a way to organize, literally organize human labor and get scale uh, around it. A network driven approach uh, in contrast to a hierarchy is something that was really an academic theory for a number of years in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And there was discussion about it. And some people may remember things like matrix management that were different types of forms of organizational structures that were less hierarchical and had some cross-functional interactions. And really, uh, with the rise of the internet uh, the, and, and subsequently social networks, uh, the idea of a different approach to the way that we communicate with each other and a different way that power is exerted started to appear. Now, it's, it's really important to recognize in a hierarchy, there's kind of two ways to increase your power, which is essentially to move up the, the, the hierarchy. One way to increase your power is to subscribe to and execute on the norms of the organization you're part of that has a hierarchy and get promoted up the hierarchy. Interestingly, there's another insidious way to move up the hierarchy, which is to undermine the person directly above you, where they then get fired or marginalized, and then you move up the hierarchy into their position. It's very interesting to sort of think about how those kinds of things play out in uh, some different types of hierarchies. In a network, you know, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn sort of programmed us to think that the more people we're connected to, the more important we are in the network. And that that's actually not correct. Uh, what's really interesting in a network model is not just the number of people you're connected to, but the value of the information that flows across those connections, both directions. So if you have very few connections, uh, but the value of information that you flow across those connections is extremely high, you're not that important to the network. If you have huge numbers of connections, but the value of the information that flows across those connections is very low, 
you're not of much importance either. And in neither of those cases do you have much power. However, if you have a, you know, a moderate number to a large number of connections and a high value of information flowing across the connections, you become very powerful. And in that network model, there is much, much less control um, exogenously over one's own ability to generate power, importance, and influence in the network other than in their own actions. Now, there's plenty of constraints and problems uh, with the evolution of networks, and we certainly understand in this moment, or hopefully we understand in this moment, uh, certainly around uh, racial equity uh, post uh, the conversation post the George Floyd murders, conversation that's been going on around gender equity for a long time, is that networks that do not overlap or interlink tend to have structural inequities in them. And so one of the really powerful constructs that we try to get across uh, in the startup community way is the importance of inclusiveness of anyone who wants to engage in the startup community, because then you get much broader and more robust interconnects between networks that can evolve and grow and develop um, as they see fit rather than through some external control. Some people will listen to this, Brad, and thinking, well, this is all very well and it sounds kind of sexy, uh, networks triumphing over hierarchies. But what we've seen so far in the digital revolution is the triumph of winner-take-all companies uh, like Apple and Facebook and Google and above all else, Amazon, that seem to operate a, an incredibly hierarchical business model. Uh, of, a, of a few extremely rich, powerful people at the top and then a, a, a massive class of workers. Uh, in your vision, and I know you're not speaking on behalf of either tech or Silicon Valley, you're based in, in Boulder anyway. It, it, from your perspective, um, to what extent has the digital revolution so far strengthened certain kinds of hierarchies? I think there's a lot of, uh, sorry to use the word complexity, but a lot of complexity in in both the question uh, and the way to think about it. Uh, and I would, uh, in a short version, challenge some of the assertions. So I think that it's very, very easy to talk about the consolidation of power amongst a small number of very powerful uh, companies and very powerful and wealthy people. However, if you look at entrepreneurship broadly and company creation broadly around the world, uh, there's been a very significant democratization of innovation entrepreneurship, even against the backdrop of those very large companies. Is there, um, uh, are there situations where the uh, words of the leaders and the actions of the companies disconnect uh, in a way that's not helpful for society, you know, I would suggest there are. There's some great books to read on it. One of uh, one of my favorites that uh, helps people think through this particular topic would be Roger McNamee's book Zucked, uh, that goes very deep on uh, McNamee's view of uh, the evolution of Facebook. Um, but if you look at where we are in 2020, and the ability of someone. Uh, with no resources or limited resources uh, to start a company and over a long, anywhere in the world and over a long period of time, not a year or two, because it takes a long time to build something significant, over 10 or 15 or 20 years, um, build a meaningful uh, new business that affects people in a significant way. I think the uh, opportunity to do that today 
is greater than it ever has been in my professional experience. And I've, I've been, you know, I started my first company in 1987. Um, I would also suggest that uh, historically, there have always been a small number of uh, very powerful companies when people look at uh, the influence of business on uh, society. And the question, and, and by the way, I think it's a, a very good one to dig into right now, is how the digitization of everything manipulates human thought and human perspective in a different way, possibly manipulate being a loaded word, uh, influences human thought and human perspective in both good ways and bad ways. Uh, I don't think you have to look too far to see some bad ways, uh, especially around uh, American politics and how social media uh, and some of these technologies have been used to negatively impact uh, politics. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, though, if you look at certain uh, industries that have been uh, enabled and created by some of the new technologies uh, and layers on top of it, there have been some incredibly positive effects. So sort of painting it with a broad brush, I don't like. I just I don't feel like that's very helpful and saying, you know, gosh, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, they have too much power. Hmm, okay, they have a lot of power, but they also enable an enormous amount of positive things. And it's the balance between the positive and the negative that's so important to understand and try to figure out over time what to do with. What I liked about your book is at least the, and your thesis, is the, the, the implicit importance of the city, particularly at a local level. Um, you have what you call the Boulder thesis or Boulder theses. You're obviously based in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, four principles which define a lasting startup community that are important, obviously, in entrepreneurial and economic terms, but I think perhaps also have a broader socioeconomic and cultural reach. What, very briefly, Brad, are those Boulder theses? So the four the four principles which... Uh, I came up with in 2012, uh, and at the time, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. At the time, there was a view that if you wanted to build uh, a startup or a tech company, you really needed to be in one of a couple of places, primarily the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. Uh, I made an assertion that you could create a startup uh, and a tech company, an entrepreneurial company uh, in uh any city in the world that had a critical mass of people. And in fact, you know, I defined the critical mass as 100,000, which is about the size of Boulder. More importantly, I said that every city in the world needed to have a startup community, um, not as the only thing to be healthy, but as one of the contributions to the ongoing health of the city. You needed this innovation characteristic, this entrepreneurial engine within your city. So the, the four theses that uh, or the four principles that enable that uh, are one, the startup community has to be led by entrepreneurs. Uh, you have to have a critical mass of entrepreneurs who are leading. Lots of other organizations that can participate and help and be engaged. Um, but if you don't have a critical mass of entrepreneurs leading, you're not going to go anywhere. The university by itself or the government by itself is not going to create a vibrant long-term startup community. So not, not hierarchical in the traditional sense. Correct. And this is where the collision of network and hierarchies come in, right? Those entrepreneurs 
are each running their own companies. So they're, they don't, there's no president of the startup community or vice president of education or vice president of membership. People don't get elected into positions. It's this organic evolving phenomenon. Uh, the second is that you have to have a long-term view. And I define that in the first book as a 20-year view. And, and today I define it as 20 years from today where you're constantly looking out 20 years into the future. Building startups, building entrepreneurial companies takes a long time. Um, you have to be committed to a long-term uh, engagement if you want to build a healthy startup community. The Perhaps th- everyone, everyone in that sense should learn to be a, a marathon runner like you. <laughs> well, you know, there's the cliche that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's, you know, it's a very good cliche. And by the way, uh, anybody who's ever run a marathon, every mar- I've run 25, every marathon I ran, I've run, I have had moments where I was done well before I got to mile 26.2 in the finish line. And, you know, with the creation of companies and the creation of startup communities, there's lots of, you know, ups, but there's lots of downs and you've got to have this long view and just be willing to continue to persevere through the challenges and through the downs to get to uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, the third principle is to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage in any way. We touched on this earlier with the importance of overlapping networks, um, but really being inclusive and engaging anyone, regardless of any characteristics they have. And then the fourth is that you need to have... Um, can I just jump in here, sure. Brad? Um, when it comes to entrepreneurs and inclusiveness, there's obviously a raging debate within Silicon Valley, particularly about inclusiveness, women and African-Americans. Um, very briefly touch on that, and, 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 and it's all very well talking in theory. Why are these n- network cultures, at the moment at least, generally not succeeding in being inclusive? Or am I, again, being unfair? No, I think you're being very fair. Uh, I don't think it's a raging debate. I think it's true. <laughs> And the the realization in this moment in 2020 didn't start in 2020. It started, you know, a number of years ago. I think there were um, uh, many people uh, that have been putting energy into uh, gender equity uh, within tech and entrepreneurship. Uh, I've been involved in an organization that's just as an example started in 2005 by a woman named Lucy Sanders called. Uh, National Center for Women and Information Technology, or NCWIT. And NCWIT's goal is to get more girls and women involved in computer science. And Lucy's view at the beginning in 2005 that got me involved was a statement she made to me, which is gender equity is an output. Uh, the And it's a, it's a good output to get to. The important reason to do this, though, is for innovation and competitiveness. And she asks a series of rhetorical questions. If the only people who develop our products are white men, uh, our products are not going to be very good. If the only people that uh, lead businesses are white men, those businesses long-term are not going to be as successful. And oh, by the way, we need lots and lots more people building products that understand computer science and engineering. Can go back to 2005. And the only way that we can actually get the population involved that we need is to get a lot more girls and women involved. Of course, or not of course, but it's worth noting, um, there was a, a phase shift, which is a characteristic of a complex system. 
before the phase shift, things seem like they're going along, you know, in a certain way. And then all of a sudden something happens and things are in a totally different place uh, in what feels like immediately uh, around the Me Too movement. And while there was uh, some focus on getting more women involved as entrepreneurs, funding more women, uh, getting more women uh, involved in VC firms, it was moving very slow and there wasn't a lot of functional attention on it. Suddenly, when Me Too emerged and the trauma around that also had a catalyzing effect uh, of a number of women uh, and then men who supported those women saying, we have to change this. And the women leading, the men being allies or advocates, you can use either of those words, and supporting the energy. And it's something I learned from Lucy. You show up, uh, I'm, I'm a white male, I show up. If I show up and say, okay, I'm going to solve the female gender issue in tech, uh, you know, that's not helpful. Any of the assertions that I would have made in 2005, six or seven about what to do and all the anecdotes I heard from other people were at best neutral and were, you know, generally hurtful or harmful. And so what's more important, uh, if you're not uh, in, in the, uh, category that's that's uh, underrepresented or disadvantaged uh, is to show up and say, "All right, I'm going to support you in this case, uh, the women in uh, the process of changing this dynamic of getting more women involved and uh, supporting the efforts that you're doing and being an advocate." And there's some very specific characteristics around that. For fast forward to race, we had that phase change with race. Uh, around George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd, and by the way, you know, of course, uh, uh, or with race, it's it's much worse in tech than gender, uh, and I think that there's uh, now a number of people who are very motivated to be advocates and allies in supporting uh, black and brown entrepreneurs and investors and in getting the, those networks overlapped and much more connected. Excellent. So, and the final principle? Final principle is just to have a super saturation of activities and events that engage people in entrepreneurship. And, and of course, in the Bay Area, I think people know that as gospel because there's something, you know, there's 27 things going on every day. Uh, you want to get to that in other cities. And in Boulder, you know, we reached that point probably around 2011 or 2012, where, you know, every night during the week, there were multiple things going on where all of a sudden, if you wanted to participate in everything, you couldn't. And so it's not that you have entrepreneur of the year events and networking things, but you're actually doing things with each other to practice the art of entrepreneurship. Finally, Brad, uh, you're stuck, if that's the right word, in Boulder. I'm in Berkeley. Uh, everyone should read uh, your new book, The Startup Community Way, which encapsulates a lot of your thinking about startups, uh, both and, and, and of course, com complexity theory and complex systems to make the world a better place and a more um, innovative place. What else should people be reading in addition to your book to make sense, perhaps, of our strange times in 2020. Well, I'm, I'm a huge reader, so I can't limit myself to one book. So I'll rattle off a couple if you'll indulge me. Um, if people want to understand the disease and, and the health crisis, there's two really good books, one fact, one fiction. Uh, the, the, the nonfiction book is called The Great Influenza. It's written by John Barry, and it's the story of the 1918 pandemic. 
The fictional book is called The End of October, and it's written by Lawrence Wright, and it came out in April. And the underlying story is around a global pandemic. It has a very dystopic ending. (coughs) But because it came out in April, he was done writing the book in January or February. Um, And it's remarkable how well he describes the unfolding of the pandemic. Uh, If you're interested in uh, race, uh, I've read two books recently on race uh, that were incredibly powerful to me. One of them was uh, a book called So You Want to Talk About Race uh, by an author named Jima Ulu. The other book is a book uh, called the Tulsa 1921. It's just called Tulsa 1921. It's about the Greenwood Massacre uh, written by uh, Randy Kreebel. And just as a, if for people that don't read and want to watch TV, uh, my wife Amy and I just finished watching The Watchtower, uh, which is an HBO series uh, that reflects back over and over again on the, uh, the Tulsa 1921 massacre as an underlying theme within it. And it was very, very well done and very powerful as well. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.